this is Chris Date, and you were listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 2, Take Me to the River. Won't you take me? The topic of this, the second episode of the The Apologetics podcast, is baptism. More specifically, the idea known as baptismal regeneration, a view which holds that the physical act of water baptism is necessary for salvation, that it is indeed the means by which salvation is entered into and experienced. We'll dive right into that topic in a moment, but before we do, I want to thank you so much if you listened along to episode one of this podcast. And in case you want to dig more deeply into the topic of that episode, I wanted to let you know that I include extensive show notes at the podcast homepage. Uh, my show notes include links to albums whose clips I include to open and close the show, links to resources and podcasts that I promote, brief explanations of some of the terminology that I highlight in the show, and links to the historical and biblical references that I discuss. So do visit the podcast homepage at theapologetics.podbean.com. Click on the episode title and let me know if what you find there is useful. I would love to encourage you to do research into the topics that I podcast on, and I'm hoping that the show notes that I give you will help you to do so. Now, going back and listening to that podcast a couple of times, um, I noticed that there were at least two big problems with that episode, two things that even I, listening along, found really distracting. First, I know that the popping sound from my p-words is uh, pretty annoying, as is my frequent stammering use of uh and um. I'll try to improve in both these areas, in this and in future episodes. Additionally, I confess I made a mistake. At about 40 minutes into the show, I was discussing a scene in the vision that is recorded in the book of Revelation. And this had uh, come after I had done a lot of talking about some, um, some of the things that Paul had said in his epistles. And here's, listen along to the mistake that I made, see if you can pick it out. And this leads us to a fifth example of people in scripture who believed and taught the resurrection. In John's vision of the future in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, Paul saw those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Did you catch the mistake? Quite obviously, as I had just gotten done saying, this was John's vision of the future, not Paul's. So it was John who saw the dead resurrected, not Paul. Now, I'm certain that this is not the last mistake I'm going to be making in this podcast, so please do contact me if you come across any other mistakes I make, and I'll be sure to correct them in subsequent episodes. Two last things I'd like to mention. I haven't yet developed the ability to speak on the topics I want to discuss in a sort of off-the-cuff, shooting-from-the-hip kind of way. As soon as I deviate from a script of sorts, it's an utter train wreck, believe me. So, I know that last episode sounded a bit dry and scripted, and that will probably be the case for this episode as well. 
But if that's a problem for you, please don't give up on this podcast yet. I'll be making an effort to improve in this area, and after a few more episodes, I hope you'll notice a difference. Also, I'm pleased to announce, despite my utter distaste for this software, that The Apologetics is now available in the iTunes Store. You can search for The Apologetics in iTunes and you'll find my podcast, and this means also that you can leave me comments there. I would very much appreciate your comments in iTunes, even if they're critical, so long as you give me feedback that I can learn from. I'll look forward to whatever you have to say, good or bad. Now before I dive into the topic of baptismal regeneration, I'd like to play a promo for another podcast, one whose host has been really very friendly and supportive and encouraging to me. There have been a few times where I've been down, um, and his words of encouragement really lifted me up. His podcast is one I definitely recommend. Hi, I'm Phil Nasons, host of the Theology Today Apologetic Ministries Podcast. You can find us at theologytoday.podbean.com, where I cover a wide variety of topics affecting the body of Christ today. That's theologytoday.podbean.com. And now back to the Theo Apologetics Podcast with Chris Day. Take it away, Chris. Thanks, Phil. And uh, with that, let's dive right into the topic. In episode one, I explained that my concern that the church was largely ignorant of the resurrection arose from a discussion that I'd had with a friend, a discussion in which I was challenged regarding the importance of baptism and its role in the Christian salvation. Now, whereas I had insisted that salvation is by grace alone through faith apart from works, he explained that his understanding is that one must also be baptized in order to be saved. While my friend argues this position from scripture, I assume it's also something that he's taught. You see, his congregation is one of the churches of Christ, which is not so much a denomination as much as a group of associated yet individual autonomous Christian congregations which share certain common beliefs and practices. One of these beliefs is the view which my friend was sharing with me that baptism is necessary for salvation. Now, although the Churches of Christ would draw a sharp distinction between them, this view is very similar to a doctrine shared by the Roman Catholic Church, as well as a few other Christian sects. That view, called baptismal regeneration, holds that it is not simply that the physical act of water baptism is required in order to be saved, but that the saving remission or washing away of sins actually takes place at baptism. Despite some of the distinctions which uh, the Churches of Christ might make between their view and baptismal regeneration, I think they're similar enough that I'm going to treat them together in this episode, examining their arguments from scripture and church history, and explaining why I think their positions are, are incorrect. Now, there are a number of ways in which I could go about this discussion, but um, what I want to avoid is for it to be able to be said that I've poorly presented their arguments. You see, a straw man argument is a logical fallacy in which one disproves a poor imitation of another's view. Such a straw man imitation may be easier to knock down than the real position it represents, giving the impression that an argument has been won. But the real argument, the one that hasn't been addressed, remains intact and potentially convincing. I've decided, therefore, to break this discussion up into two parts. First, I'm going to step into the proverbial shoes of my friend, putting forth what I think is the argument in favor of his view and that of baptismal regeneration. I will, in a sense, attempt to prove this view as if I were trying to convince you, my listeners. 
Then, I'll return to my side of the fence and respond to that argument, explaining why I don't think that it holds water. My hope is that, when all is said and done, listeners who might in the end disagree with me will nevertheless feel as though I'd honestly presented their argument. And ultimately, it will be up to you to decide whose argument is most sound. So, with that introduction out of the way, let me first try and prove to you that baptism, as the washing away of our sins, is a requirement for salvation. We'll start with the biblical case since my friend and I both agree that the Bible is the ultimate authority over and above church history. It's worth first taking a look at Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. It reads, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings, and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. You see, here, instruction about washings is included as part of the foundation alongside repentance, faith, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. It therefore uh, must be very basic and fundamental, something which must be understood before pressing on to maturity. So with that in mind, since Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of God the Father, let's look at what he has said concerning baptism. In John chapter 3, verses 3 to 5, Jesus tells Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So we see here that Jesus insists that one must be born again to be saved, and when Nicodemus asked what that means, Jesus responds that we must be born of water and the Spirit. What could the water here be but baptism? It seems pretty clear that Jesus is saying we must be baptized to be saved. Consider Jesus' own baptism as recorded in Matthew 3, 13-16. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him, and after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting upon him. So what does being born of water and the Spirit look like? Well, if Jesus is any indication, it looks like being indwelt by the Holy Spirit at time of baptism. But in case it isn't yet clear, let's look at Mark 16, uh, verses 15 to 16. And Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has baptized, uh, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Jesus says those who will be saved are those who have believed and been baptized. It's no wonder then that Jesus' departing words in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 are recorded as follows. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus says we are not only commanded to be baptized in order to be saved, but we are commanded to baptize others in order to make them disciples. So how then did the apostles respond immediately after Christ's departure? 
At Pentecost, in Acts 2.38, Peter says to the Jews listening, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The forgiveness of their sins, then, is connected with baptism in Christ's name, and they're told that upon being so baptized, they would receive the Holy Spirit. In verse 41, then, we're told, Those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. The man that God used to witness to Paul when he was still Saul made the same connection in Acts 22:15 and 16. He says to Paul, or Saul, For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So again, there's this connection between baptism and the washing away of sins. Now, given Christ's words concerning baptism, and given this connection made by the apostles between baptism and the remission of sins, it's no wonder that so many new converts recognize the need to immediately be baptized. Simon the magician and the Sumerians in Acts chapter 8, 12, and 13 rushed to be baptized. The eunuch in Acts chapter 8, 35 to 38 rushed to be baptized. When Paul was converted in Acts 9, 17 to 18, he rushed to be baptized. Lydia from Thyatira in Acts 16, 14 to 15 rushed to be baptized. The jailer and his family in Acts chapter 16, verses 32 to 33 rushed to be baptized. Crispus, his household, and many other Corinthians in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, rushed to be baptized. And in Acts chapter 19, 2 to 6, Paul finds some Ephesian disciples who receive the Holy Spirit only once they've been baptized. These various new believers all felt compelled to be baptized immediately. Why? Because Jesus said it was necessary and modeled it for us, receiving the Holy Spirit at his baptism. And because Peter and Paul connected baptism with the remission of sins. And sure enough, we see that in that last case we looked at, that it wasn't until the disciples were baptized that they received the Holy Spirit. It would seem at this point that the case is rock solid, um, but it doesn't end there. There's more. The apostles Peter and Paul spoke of the saving importance of baptism in their epistles. In his letter to the Romans, in chapter 6, verses 3 to 4, Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So the means by which we are in Christ Jesus and enter into his death and resurrection is baptism. He writes similarly in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So, those who have clothed themselves with Christ, Paul writes, were baptized into him. And again, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, you have been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So, yet again, we see that we are buried with Christ through baptism, a prerequisite for being raised up with him. He says it slightly differently in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 writing, By one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. By what means then were we made to drink of one spirit? Well, by being baptized into one body. And Peter makes it perhaps still clearer in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20-21, to 21, when he writes, The patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight, persons, were brought safely through the water, Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Peter then is saying that it is in fact the act of baptism which saves us. 
So to summarize the biblical evidence, Jesus said being born again is being born of water and spirit, and he modeled this in his baptism, at which time he received the Holy Spirit. He said those who believe and are baptized will be saved, and he commanded the disciples to make disciples through baptism. The apostles immediately after the ascension began connecting baptism with the remission of sins, and new believers rushed to be baptized as soon as they believed. And in one case we've seen the new believers didn't even receive the Holy Spirit until they were baptized. Paul wrote to the churches that believers are baptized into him and into his death and resurrection. And Peter said very explicitly that baptism is what saves us. It really does seem so conclusive that one's left to wonder why anybody would deny it in the first place. Uh, it seems very plainly clear baptism is required for salvation, that indeed salvation doesn't happen until somebody's baptized. This fact wasn't lost on the early church fathers. Tertullian, living in the late 2nd and early 3rd centuries, wrote a treatise on baptism in which he wrote, Happy is our sacrament of water in that by washing away the sins of our early blindness we are set free and admitted into eternal life. He even spoke of those, like many evangelicals today, um, who say baptism is not necessary for them to whom faith is sufficient, for withal Abraham pleased God by a sacrament of no water but of faith. But, he, but Tertullian refutes that by saying, Grant that in days gone by there was salvation by means of bare faith before the passion and resurrection of the Lord. But now that faith has been enlarged, there has been an amplification added to the sacrament, the sealing act of baptism. Tertullian wasn't alone. Augustine, living in the late 4th and early 5th centuries, he wrote about marriage and lust. And in this work he said, Not that baptism is to be repeated as often as sin is repeated, but that by its one only ministration it comes to pass that pardon is secured to the faithful of all their sins, both before and after their regeneration. For of what use would repentance be, either before baptism, if baptism did not follow, or after it, if it did not precede? Of what avail or advantage would it be, uh, would it be for that petition to be uttered, Forgive us our debts, unless it be by such as have been baptized? In short, on whom but on the baptized shall be bestowed the very felicities of the kingdom of heaven. Adding to Tertullian and Augustine, Origen, living in the second and early third centuries, commented on Romans 5.9, in which he said, The church received from the apostles the tradition of giving baptism even to infants. The apostles to whom were committed the secrets of divine sacraments knew there is in every one innate strains of original sin, which must be washed away through water and the spirit. Cyprian lived in the 3rd century, and in his 72nd epistle, he encourages believers to be baptized in the lawful and true and only baptism of the Holy Church by divine regeneration for the kingdom of God, that they may be born of both sacraments, because it is written, unless a man, may be, unless a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say that people cannot, except in baptism, put off the sins of their blasphemies. Ambrose, who lived in the 4th century, wrote something called On the Mysteries, in which he said, Therefore read that the three witnesses in baptism, the water, the blood, and the spirit, are one. For if you take away one of these, the sacrament of baptism does not exist. For what is water without the cross of Christ? Nor again is there the sacrament of regeneration without water. For except a man be born again of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now even the new believer believes in the cross of the Lord Jesus, but unless he be baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, he cannot receive remission of sins, nor gain the gift of spiritual grace. And finally, the recognitions of Clement, 
is a collection of works which purports to contain the record of Clement of Rome, who lived in the late first century. In book six, the author writes, And do you suppose that you can have hope towards God, even if you cultivate all piety and all righteousness, but do not receive baptism? Now God has ordered everyone who worships him to be sealed by baptism. And the author goes on to say, What does the baptism of water contribute towards the worship of God? Because when you were regenerated and born again of water and of God, you shall be able to attain salvation, but otherwise it is impossible. So here we see in six very early Christian writings the same truth that we've just seen from Scripture, namely that, as Jesus said, one must be born again of water and of spirit in order to enter into the kingdom of God. These Christian teachers who followed very closely after the writing of the New Testament united in agreement concerning this very simple truth which many evangelicals some nearly 2,000 years later deny. And if there remains any doubt as to the importance of this truth, these early church fathers codified it in the creed affirmed at the Council of Constantinople in the year 381, in which they affirmed, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. So the Bible teaches that baptism is necessary for salvation, the church fathers taught that baptism is necessary for salvation, and they defined it as an essential of the Christian faith in the creed affirmed at Constantinople. What choice, then, do we have but to likewise affirm this truth? How are we today justified in teaching, contrary to the Bible in the early church, that salvation is not dependent upon baptism? This, then, is the case as best I can make it in support of baptismal regeneration. And I've not knowingly omitted any biblical support for the doctrine, and though more statements from the early church could be cited, I think I've quoted enough of them to make the case. If you're listening and you believe baptism is a requirement for salvation, and if you feel that I've left anything important out, please contact me and let me know, and I can do a follow-up to this episode, adding what I've missed, so that the rest of my listeners have all the pertinent facts. For the time being, however, let me now take off my friend's shoes and return to my position and explain why, despite that this case seems so powerful, I don't agree with this conclusion. I concluded the case for baptismal regeneration with statements from the early church fathers, and I'm going to begin my case against it in the same way. Although many later church fathers that we looked at viewed baptism as the means of salvation, earlier church fathers do not appear to have felt the same way. First, it should be noted that it is absent from several of the creeds. Last week I quoted from an early rule of faith, as well as the Apostles' Creed and the Athanasian Creed. None of these creeds make any mention of baptism whatsoever. The creed affirmed at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 does, but the original creed affirmed at the First Council of Nicaea in 325, like the Apostles' Creed and the rule of faith it was based on, neglect baptism entirely, all of which came before the creed affirmed at Constantinople, such as the case also with the Athanasian Creed, which came after it. So the church, both before and after the First Council of Constantinople, made no mention of baptism in their authoritative creeds. The earliest church fathers, individually, don't speak of baptism as being the means of salvation either, and seem, at least instead, to emphasize faith alone apart from works. As I mentioned in the previous episode, Polycarp lived in the first and second centuries and is believed to have been a disciple of John. In his letter to the Philippians, as recorded by Irenaeus, the words baptism, baptized, and baptized cannot be found at all. He does, however, quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 in the introduction, saying, By grace you have been saved, not of works. Later, he quotes 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, saying, We shall also reign together with him, and he adds, Provided only we believe. 
Toward the end, he says, May the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ bestow on you a lot and portion among his saints, and on us with you, and on all that are under heaven who shall believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Polycarp, one of the earliest church fathers, earlier than the ones that we've looked at before, uh, making no mention of baptism whatsoever, says salvation comes through faith. Clement of Rome also lived in the first and second centuries, and in his letter to the Corinthians, yet again we find no baptism. Speaking of Rahab and the Israelite spies, he writes, They made it manifest that redemption should flow through the blood of the Lord to all them that believe and hope in God. He also wrote, We too, being called by his will in Christ Jesus, are not justified by ourselves, nor by our own wisdom or understanding or godliness or works which we have wrought in holiness of heart, but by that faith through which from the beginning Almighty God has justified all men. He goes on to say that that doesn't mean we should stop doing good works, but says that these good works should flow out of our faith and our love, which he just said is that by which we are justified. Now, in the end of the case in favor of baptismal regeneration, I quoted a work which purports to be that of this same Clement. However, from what I can gather, the evidence is that this Clementine literature is not, in fact, the work of Clement of Rome, but rather finds its origin well after Clement's death. You'll have to do the research for yourself, you know, don't take my word for it, but as such, it's not the early testimony some might claim it to be. Clement's letter to the Corinthians, on the other hand, is early testimony and, as we've seen, teaches salvation through faith. Ignatius of Antioch was also a student of John the Apostle and, and lived in the first and second centuries. In his letter to the Philadelphians, he makes no mention of baptism, but says, Let us also love the prophets, because they too have proclaimed the gospel, and placed their hope in Jesus, and waited for him, in whom also believing they were saved through union to Jesus Christ. In his letter to the Trallians, again makes no mention of baptism. He does say that they are living according to Jesus Christ, who died for us, in order by believing in his death you may escape from death. And he says that Jesus' father quickened him, even as after the same manner of his father will so raise up us who believe in him. In his letter to Polycarp, he says, Speaking of being long-suffering and not deserting the faith, let your baptism endure as your arms, your faith as your helmet, your love as your spear, your patience as a complete panoply. Now nothing is said here of baptism affecting anything, only that it should serve to help Polycarp endure. In his letter to the Smyrnaeans, all that is said of baptism is that it shouldn't be done without the bishop. He speaks highly of the Eucharist, or communion, the Lord's Supper, saying that heretics abstain because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ. Those, therefore, who speak against this gift of God, that is, the Eucharist, incur death at the midst of their disputes. The issue of the Lord's Supper will be the topic of a future episode, but for now, I just want to point out that even while placing great importance on the Eucharist, uh, Ignatius here places seemingly no importance on baptism. In writing to the Ephesians, he says of baptism only that Jesus was born and baptized, that by his passion we might pure, he might purify the water. Now what Ignatius means is unclear, but what he does present very clearly is the Protestant view of the relationship between faith and works. He writes, None of these things is hid from you if you perfectly possess that faith and love towards Jesus Christ, which are the beginning and the end of life. For the beginning is faith and the end is love. Now these two, being inseparably connected together, are of God, while all other things which are requisite for a holy life follow after them. No man, truly making a profession of faith, sins, nor does he that possess love hate anyone. The tree is made manifest by its fruit, so those that profess themselves to be Christians shall be recognized by their conduct. For there is not now a demand for mere profession, but that a man be found continuing in the power of faith to the end. 
So what Ignatius is saying is that faith is the source or the beginning and that works are its evidence. An apple tree isn't an apple tree because it bears apples. A tree bears apples because it's an apple tree. Likewise, one who is saved is not saved because of works, rather he does works because he is saved. In the same way then, baptism, a work, can serve as evidence of salvation, but not its cause. The Epistle of Barnabas is believed to have been written in the 1st or early 2nd century. It was sometimes publicly read in the churches and was even included alongside the writings of the New Testament, but it wasn't considered canonical or of apostolic origin. Sometimes it's pointed to as proof that the church viewed water baptism as the remission of sins. Its readers were told that concerning the water, indeed, it is written in reference to the Israelites that they should not receive that baptism which leads to the remission of sins. That is, the, the prophets foretold that the Jews would reject it. And he goes on to say, Blessed are they who, placing their trust in the cross, have gone down into the water, and we indeed descend into the water, full of sins and defilement, but come up bearing fruit in our heart. Now this seems on the surface to confirm the baptismal regeneration view, but a closer look reveals that this is probably not the case. Shortly before this section, in so-called chapter 7, the sacrifice of a goat in the Old Testament is said to have been a type of Christ. That is, it symbolically prefigured Jesus. In chapter 8, a red heifer is likewise said to have prefigured Jesus, that those believing on him shall live forever. In chapter 9, the physical act of circumcision is said to have symbolized circumcision of the heart and ears, that we might hear his word and believe. In chapter 10, those animals which Israel was forbidden to eat are said to have symbolized people. A swine represent people who live in passion and forget their Lord, turning to him only to satisfy their needs. Birds of prey represent people who plunder the work, others, uh, the work of others rather than procure food for themselves. And unclean fish represent people who commit wickedness, such as adultery. Food, then, is a metaphor for a spiritual reality. So in chapter 11, where water and baptism are discussed, water, to, uh, likely, is also a metaphor for a spiritual reality. The author quotes Jeremiah 2.13, saying, They have forsaken me a living fountain. God is not a literal fountain of literal water. But Jesus said in John 4, verses 10 to 13, that he is the source of living water. He said that the water he gives will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And in John 7.38 says, He who believes in me from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So drinking living water is connected with belief in Jesus Christ and scripture. The author of the epistle of Barnabas does so too, saying, For these words imply, blessed are they who, placing their trust in the cross, have gone down into the water. He writes, What says God in references to the Son? His water is sure, you shall see the King in his glory, and your soul shall meditate on the fear of the Lord. Remember, the author said, We indeed descend into the water, full of sins and defilement, but come up, bearing fruit in our heart. He goes on to say what that fruit is, having the fear of God and trust in Jesus in our spirit. The water then being spoken of is not the literal water of the act of baptism, but the regeneration of the sinful heart unto trust in Jesus Christ. Thus, concluding this chapter, the author writes, This means whoever shall hear you speaking and believe shall live forever. And if there remains any doubt that the author of this work is speaking of belief in Christ and not some physical act, he goes on to say in the next chapter, speaking of Moses' holding his hands up for the parting of the Red Sea, the Spirit speaks to the heart of Moses that he should make a figure of the cross and of him about to suffer thereon, for unless they put their trust in him, they shall overcome forever.
And when again he let down his hands, they were again destroyed. For what reason? That they might know that they could not be saved unless they put their trust in him. Finally, we'll look at one more. Uh, Justin Martyr lived in the early 2nd century. And in his work, in which he depicts a conversation between himself and a Jew named Trypho, he writes of baptism in a way which highly suggests he has in view not the physical act of water baptism, but the spiritual washing of the living water spoken in the epistle of Barnabas that we looked at just a moment ago. He says, The cisterns which you have dug for yourselves are broken and profitless to you, for what is the use of that baptism which cleanses the flesh and body alone? Baptize the soul from wrath and from covetousness, from envy and from hatred, and lo, the body is pure. For this is the symbolic significance of unleavened bread, that you do not commit the old deeds of wicked leaven. He later writes to Trypho, You receive that useless baptism of cisterns, for it has nothing to do with this baptism of life. Wherefore also God has announced that you have forsaken him, the living fountain, and dug for yourselves broken cisterns which can hold no water. Even you who are the circumcised according to the flesh have need of our circumcision, but we, having the latter, do not require the former. This baptism of life is from the living fountain, and contrasts the Jews' physical useless circumcision with the spiritual circumcision of hearts enjoyed by Christians. That the baptism in view here is spiritual and not physical seems obvious. He concludes, What need, then, have I of circumcision who have been witnessed to by God? What need have I of that other baptism who have been baptized with the Holy Ghost? This seems clearly to come from Matthew 3.11, which Justin Martyr later quotes, in which John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So the baptism that Justin Martyr here is speaking of is spiritual, one of a washing away of the sins by the Holy Spirit, not a physical baptism in water. In his work on the resurrection, Justin Martyr makes no mention of baptism. He writes that the body, soul, and spirit in all those who cherish a sincere hope and unquestioning faith in God will be saved. This suggests not only a physical washing, but a spiritual one, by saying that not only has your soul heard and believed on Jesus Christ and with it the flesh, but both were washed and both wrought in righteousness. It is true that in his first apology, Justin Martyr says something that seems to confirm baptismal regeneration. Speaking of the newly converted, he writes, They are brought by us where there is water, and are regenerated in the same manner in which we ourselves were regenerated, so that they might obtain in the water the remission of sins formerly committed. Shortly thereafter, though, he writes, He appeared in the shape of fire and in the likeness of an angel to Moses and to the other prophets, but now in the times of your reign, having, as we before said, become man by a virgin, according to the counsel of the Father, for the salvation of those who believe in him. And earlier in this work, he wrote of the cleansing by his blood of those who believe in him, those men who believe in him and in whom abides the seed of God, the word. So we should be careful not to be too dogma dogmatic when it comes to what Justin Martyr meant when he spoke of obtaining in the water the remission of sins. So in Polycarp, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, and the author of the Epistle of Barnabas, we have several very early testimonies, earlier than the ones that we looked at before, which unite in affirming that salvation is through faith alone, and which say very little of the physical act of baptism. And in Justin Martyr, we see at most the seeds of an increased emphasis on water baptism. And later church fathers certainly placed still greater emphasis on it, saying that it washes away sin. Now, does the fact that the church developed this view of water baptism, rather than begin with it, prove that they were wrong? 
Well, no, for that will in a moment turn to scripture, but what seems clear is that the earliest church did not share their view. Whose view, then, does scripture support? In the positive case for baptismal regeneration, we've looked at some of the passages used to defend that view. Do these passages, in fact, support the later church fathers rather than the earlier ones? Do they prove that salvation is not through faith alone apart from works and that instead the remission of sins is not experienced until one undergoes the physical act of water baptism? Before we address each of those passages individually, I want to lay a foundation for salvation by faith alone. We'll look first at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, in which Paul tells the Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our salvation, then, does not come as a result of works. The moment a work contributes at all to our salvation, we can boast, even if only a little. Rather, it is entirely by grace through faith. Now recall that I quoted one of Augustine's early works in which he says baptism is necessary for salvation. Well, apparently, upon meditating on this passage, Augustine changed his mind. In his On Grace and Free Will, which he wrote a couple of decades after the work I cited earlier, he comments on this passage saying, Lest they should say they deserved so great a gift by their works, he immediately added, Not of works, lest any man should boast, because works proceed from faith and not faith from works. Therefore, it is from him that we have works of righteousness. Much of what Augustine said in this work will be the topic of a future episode, but my point here is just that in at least this one case, a church father who once taught the necessity of baptism changed his mind, teaching instead that any work, which would include baptism, comes from saving faith rather than being the cause of it. In Romans 3, in verse 22, it says that the righteousness of God has been manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. And he goes on in verse 27 and 28 to say, Where then is boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And in 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, Paul writes that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Now, why would God will that salvation comes through faith alone apart from one's works? So that it could come by grace. Paul writes in Romans 4 verses 3 to 5, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. You see, if works contribute to our salvation, it is no longer grace, but what is due. He repeats this theme in Romans 11, 5 and 6, when he writes, In the same way, then, there has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So with all that in mind, it should not be a surprise to see the many, many passages in which we're told salvation comes to those who simply believe. John 3, 15-16 and 36 says, Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. And he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And he who believes in the Son has eternal life. In John 6, Jesus is asked, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And he responds, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
and later says, He who believes in me will never thirst, and everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. In John twenty thirty one, the apostle tells us, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In Acts 10.43, Peter says, Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. In Acts 13, 38 and 39, Paul says, through, whom, uh, through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things. In Acts 16.31, Paul and Silas tell the jailer, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. In Romans 4, 22-24, speaking of Abraham's faith, Paul writes that it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him, and who, and, sorry, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. In Romans 5, 1 and 2, he writes, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. In Romans 10.9, he writes, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In Galatians 3.22, he says, The promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And goes on in verse 24 to say, We may be justified by faith. And in verse 26 continues, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And in 1 John 5.5, 5, John asks rhetorically, Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? I'm sure many more passages could be cited, but I think all of these demonstrate that the scripture teaches very clearly that our salvation comes by the grace or unmerited favor of God, through faith in his Son alone, without respect to any work we perform. That being said, we've got all these statements concerning baptism that we have to deal with. The scripture, being breathed out by God himself, cannot contradict itself. So, how do we reconcile this plain teaching of salvation by grace through faith alone with the baptism passages that we've looked at? Well, let's start by returning to the first passage I presented in the positive case for baptismal regeneration. When the author of Hebrews in chapter 6 says that instruction about washings is part of the foundation, the word washings is in the plural. So right off the bat, we know that there are more than one kind of washing. That word is used also in Mark 7, 2-5 and 15, where we read that the Pharisees had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, for they do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. But Jesus says, There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. So there are physical washings that do not really cleanse the man spiritually, and men need a spiritual washing. It's used again in Hebrews 9, 8-14, where the author writes of the Old Covenant that both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to the food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered the holy place once and for all, through his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So again, phys physical washings did not save, but the cleansing of Jesus' blood does. In Ephesians 5, 25-27, Paul says husbands are to love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. He sanctified the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. 
Christ's cleansing by blood in the previous passage is here said to be a washing of water, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And in Titus 3, 4-5, Paul writes that when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ our Savior's cleansing by blood is, then, the washing of regeneration, which is connected with the renewing by the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist knew that this was the spiritual washing which, unlike his own physical washing, brought with it the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 3.11 he said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus himself said he would baptize with the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.5, saying to his disciples, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This happened in Acts 2, 1-4, where, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Further, in Acts 11, 15-17, Peter recounts when Gentiles first received the Holy Spirit. He says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Notice Peter connects Jesus' baptism in the Holy Spirit with these Gentiles having received the Holy Spirit after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he says he could not stand in God's way, he's referring to Acts 10.47 when this originally happened, in which after seeing the Holy Spirit fall upon the Gentiles after believing in Jesus, Peter asks, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? So here, baptism followed salvation and was given because they were believed and were saved. With this understanding then, what are we to make of John 3, 5, where Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God? The case for baptismal regeneration assumes that baptism is what's being spoken of here. Now, however, we see that the washing of water by which we are saved is the spiritual cleansing of our sins by the blood of Christ, which is accompanied by receiving the Holy Spirit. Remember, Nicodemus was steeped in knowledge of the Old Testament, which foretold of just such a spiritual washing. In Ezekiel 36, 25-27, God speaks of a future in which he will renew Israel, saying, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." You see, the Jews knew that the Mosaic ordinances of physical washings didn't cleanse them of sin. In Psalm 51, 2 and 7, the psalmist says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. One further point, the word again in the phrase, unless one is born again, is a Greek word which can mean again in the, sen in the sense of a second time, but can also mean from above. Nicodemus seemed to be confused because he assumed the former meaning, but the latter meaning appears to better fit the context, particularly in speaking of being born of the Spirit. We must be born from above by the washing of water that is the cleansing blood of Christ, which results in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
How about Mark 16, 15-16, in which Jesus says, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved? Well, first, it should be kept in mind that verse 9 and those that follow were not likely in the original. Later manuscripts contain these verses, but earlier ones do not, and the general consensus is that they were not originally present. Still, what if they were? Well, there would still be no problem. To explain why, I need to try to explain the logical fallacy known as denying the antecedent. I'm not going to get too technical with this. Uh, I'll do my best to explain it. But basically the idea is if I, I, I commit this fallacy if I say if A is true, then B is true. But then I say A isn't true and therefore B isn't true. For example, if I say if somebody is breathing, they are alive, that would be true. But what if I said, if somebody is not breathing, they are not alive? Is that a true statement? Well, maybe not. They might not be breathing because they might be holding their breath, or they might not be breathing because their um, air, airway is uh, obstructed and so they can't breathe. But either in either case, in, in many other examples we could come up with, they're still alive. So going back to the text, when we read that he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, can we assume, therefore, that he who has not believed or has not been baptized shall not be saved? No, we can't. We have to look to other things for that. And in this case, the very next words read, He who has disbelieved shall be condemned. So even assuming that this passage was in the original text, all that we conclude, can conclude from it is that he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. We can't assume that somebody who's not been baptized won't be saved. With this logical fallacy in our toolbox, let us now look at Acts 2.38, where Peter says, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Can we assume, therefore, that one who does not repent or is not baptized will not receive the Holy Spirit? Well, no, we can't. But we know from myriad other scriptures that one must believe. How about Acts 22.16, where Saul is told, Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Can we assume that if Paul had not been baptized, that his sins would not have been washed away? No, we cannot. But we do know from myriad other scriptures that the washing away of sins comes through faith in Christ. So moving on, how about Romans 6, 3-4, where we're told that we were buried with Jesus through baptism into death? Or how about Galatians 3:27, where we're told, You who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. How about Colossians 2:12, where we're said to have been buried with him in baptism? And 1 Corinthians 12.13, where it said that by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Well, now that we've seen that the baptism which washes away sin is the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, which happens when we believe, we know that these passages aren't speaking of the physical act of water baptism, but rather his baptism in the Holy Spirit, the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And this distinction is made clear in 1 Peter 3.21, where we're told that baptism now saves you, because it goes on to say, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. So this leaves us with one more problematic baptism passage. In Acts 19.2-6, Paul found some disciples in Ephesus who had, not, uh, who had been baptized into John's baptism. Paul asks them if, when they believed, they received the Holy Spirit, and they say that they haven't even heard of a Holy Spirit. Paul explains that John pointed people to Christ, to believe in Christ, and in response, these disciples are baptized in water. Paul lays hands on them, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. The case for baptismal regeneration assumes something. It assumes that these disciples exercised genuine saving trust in Christ and then were baptized. 
But assuming this introduces a problem, because if we view it chronologically in this way, then even after being baptized, the disciples were not saved either, so they have faith and baptism and are yet still not saved. It's not until Paul lays hands on them that they receive the Holy Spirit. But based on everything we've now seen, the more reasonable conclusion is that they placed this saving faith in Christ at the time they were baptized and had the hands laid on them. So it was the faith that they exercised at the same time as being baptized and having uh, hands laid on them that saved them. The faith, not the work. So let's summarize my case against baptismal regeneration, and maybe we can end this episode without it going over an hour. The earliest church fathers didn't view physical water baptism as being necessary for salvation or the means by which sins are remitted. This doctrine developed over time. The Bible teaches that salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith, apart from works, and that it must be apart from works, because if it were not, then it would not be grace, but would in part, at least, be something we've earned. The saving kind of baptism is not a work we agree to do, but rather the blood of Christ washing our sins away like the sprinkling of water, which, unlike the physical ordinances of the Mosaic Covenant, actually cleanses us of our filthiness. Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit upon belief and trust in Him, and it is this baptism which saves us, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. In my opinion, this case is far stronger and understands Scripture in a much more consistent, God-glorifying way. But there are a few questions left. Why did the new believers so often rush to be baptized in water when they believed? because the apostles were told by Christ to baptize them in that fashion, not because it would save them. So why did Jesus tell his disciples to baptize? What is the purpose of water baptism? Unfortunately, I don't think that scripture explicitly states why. However, consider that in the Old Covenant, a physical act served to signify belonging to that covenant community, the Israelites that is. That physical act was circumcision, the physical act of circumcising a newborn's foreskin. But the Bible teaches us that it symbolized a spiritual reality. Romans 2, 28 and 29 says true circumcision is not that which is outward in the flesh, but that circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit. Romans 4, 11 says Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And Colossians 2.11 says, You were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. If belonging to the Old Covenant was signified by a physical act which symbolized a spiritual reality, it seems consistent that belonging to the New Covenant would likewise involve such a sign. This new covenant, into which we genuinely enter when our sins are washed away by the blood of Christ, when we believe that he died, was buried, and rose again for our sins, is one we confess publicly by the physical act which best symbolizes the spiritual reality. I think Colossians 2, 11-14 says it well, and I'll end with it. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Amen. 